It's nice to see you all again. <coughs> it seems like when I'm working on something, uh, everything it just, uh, I turn on the radio at the right time and they're talking about it. You know what I'm talking about? It just seems like it's everywhere. And this week I've been studying something I didn't uh, really want to study, but I think it's very important to look at, uh, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, basically, it's the treatment of the Jews, but I am looking at treatment of the Jews, and anti-Semitism is really the template for all kinds of oppressions, and it opens the door for all kinds of oppressions, I think. But anyway, writing here this morning, made that choice. I almost put in my music, but I thought, I'm going to listen to NPR, and they're interviewing someone about Hedy Lamar. You all know who Hedy Lamar is. I discovered her a little too late in my young life. The first time I saw a picture, I was like, who the heck is this? I thought she was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life. And then I looked and saw she'd been in all these movies. She was a huge movie star. But I did not know this and what they were talking about. She was a Jew, and she was trying to get out of Europe uh, to be a movie star. And she approached Louis B. Mayer who as far as I know was a Jew himself. And they, uh, she, she approached him and he, he lowballed her. He gave her a really low amount of money to come be a star and for Metro Golden Mayor. And it's interesting that the reason they gave was because he could, because she was a Jew trying to get out of Europe. He figured she'd take anything. I was like, really? That's disgusting. That is disgusting. She turned him down. <laughs> Good for her. <laughs> but she found out which boat he was on, <laughs> got herself on it as a governess, <laughs> found him, and uh, since she got so much male attention on the boat, he hired her for five times the amount he offered originally. And she became a huge movie star. But here's so, um, some other interesting facts about her. By day, she was a movie star by night. She was an inventor. She invented such a sophisticated submarine guidance system that the Navy didn't even recognize how good it was until about 10 years after. And cell phones work on the technology that she patented. Wow. But why did people ignore her? For all the things that I've been talking about all these weeks, right? Gender, Judaism, Yes, and in some ways she was enslaved by a system. They fed her drugs to keep her awake, fed her downers to make her go to sleep, and she became addicted. She died a pauper. But they played a speech by her, and she said, some of the greatest ideas can be taken away by some of the smallest minds. Keep that in mind. That gave me a great, I, I should have had that quote up here. <laughs> Some of the greatest ideas can be kept down by what? Some of the smallest minds. But do you know what she said to do? Do it anyway. Because it's worth it if you help humanity. Even if you never get recognition, even if no one knows your name, you did it. And you might notice that I put a different person up here tonight, or today, um, <coughs> Martin Niemöller. And uh, 
You might know him by a famous poem that we'll look at later. Well, it's actually a, a poem that was made out of one of his talks. <coughs> but he, he was uh, a pastor who was a leader of what they called the Confessing Church. When Hitler took power, the church, the, they had a state church in, in Germany. Everybody understand that? Germany has a state church. Most of Europe had state churches. They'd either be Catholic or Protestant. One of the reasons we have separation of church and state is this kind of a problem. They had a state church, and the state church officially backed Hitler. So they se- part of the church separated, called themselves the Confessing Church, and he was the leader of the Confessing Church. As you might imagine, he spent seven years imprisoned. Now, he says, no more are we ready to keep selling it. He says, we had no more thought of using our, our own powers to escape the arm of authorities than the apostles of old. No more are we ready to keep selling at man's behest when God commands us to speak for it is and must remain the case that we must obey God rather than man. Okay, now... I know a lot of alt-right people will say we're not Nazis. Well, I'll let you all figure that out, but I am putting them together in the talk today. Um, There's tendency Nazis and the alt-right. Now, do I want to talk about this? Oh, no, I don't. Don't want to talk about it. But the more I studied it, the more I thought this may be the most important talk I'm giving. What did the Hebrew Bible say about foreigners, non-Hebrews, and Jews? I I wanted to start with that because I thought, what's... Where do these ideas come from? How do we, t- uh, I thought, what were the Jewish laws concerning foreigners? Maybe they would be relevant. What were Jesus' attitudes toward the Gentiles? What principle does he establish in the treatment of non-believers? Of course, we can't really find evidence um, directly in Jesus' words about anti-Semitism. He was a Jew himself. He spoke to Jews. But I think some things came out of uh, some of the things that he said, particularly in the Gospel of John that opened the door to anti-Semitism, which was a word that wasn't even invented until the 19th century. So I'm using it backwards in time as a convenient phrase, but we can recognize it wasn't a word that was used in Martin Luther's time. So how did Martin Luther, uh, the first reformer, react to anti-Semitism? How did Christians react to Hitler? What is the alt-right movement and its relation to Christianity and Christian history? And what can Christians do from repeating the mistakes of the past? Okay, so long and short of it is, did the church recognize the Nazis for what they were? No. Did a lot of them support Hitler? Did Hitler feign Christianity, claim to be a Christian? Yes. All those things are true. You remember the belt buckle, what did it say? God with us. Swastika, supposedly a Christian symbol. So the Hebrew Bible sets sort of a precedent on the treatment of foreigners, in other words, non-believers. Because later on, ironically, it's going to flip, isn't it? The Christians are going to be the believers. Jews are going to be the non-believers. So they had policies. They had two classes of strangers, resident aliens, foreigners who constructed their sojourn in the land more or less temporarily. And you can see it's kind of similar to some of the laws and rules we have today. 
We were supposed, they were supposed to behave according to the proper treatment of strangers. They made contractual arrangements with Israelites and their neighbors. Israel may charge a foreigner usury. And uh, the remission of debts in the year of Jubilee didn't apply to them. And uh, the foreigner was not bound by ritual laws, so you could sell them animals that died natural death, which was unkosher. So you could sell them unkosher food. So summary, the Zarema foreigners retained their home status and were not forced to follow Jewish practices and they could be charged interest. And I got a summary on here too because I know I put a lot of text up there. The Gur, or the Gurim, um, were resident aliens, the earlier inhabitants and immigrants. So what had happened there was pretty much the same thing that happened in something like in the United States. There were people, Canaanites already living in the land of Canaan, right? So they were part of the Gur population. And then there were some who immigrated there, mostly for similar reasons as people do now. Then, you know, they had um, famine, or poverty or war where they were, and they moved into this area to live amongst the Jews. So the greatest number of Gurim consisted of earlier inhabitants of Canaan. Despite the stories in the Bible, the people of Canaan were not wiped out. It was not an, a genocide. A lot of them were still there. The story of Ruth, she's a Gurim, right? <coughs> so they were neither slain nor reduced to total slavery as commanded in the Bible. All the land and property belonged, though, however, to the Israelites. So the place that left for them was to be treated as impoverished natives. They could share in the fallen fruit of the vineyard, edges of the field, and gleanings of the harvest. Do you remember the story of Ruth? That's what she's doing, right? Every day she goes out and just gets the leftovers. You're supposed to leave the leftovers, quote, for the poor. They were for the Garim. They got part of the... Uh, so... Summary, they couldn't own property. They had allowed only harvest remnants, but they did get a part of the tithe. And God does remind the Israelites that, you know, you once were green, right? You once were foreigners. So be careful how you treat foreigners. So there's kind of a theme in the Bible. And uh, the Bible says in Deuteronomy that they were to receive equal treatment before the law. And as it says here, since they could recall the sufferings of their own people in the land of Egypt, they were to be compassionate to the Gurim. Rather than be good to the weak and the girl were to be treated equally before the law, over time, they assimilated into Hebrew culture. If you want to know how much they assimilated, read uh, the Kings portions of the Bible. When David had people, and you'll, you'll see like some so-and-so, the, the Edomite, so-and-so, the Moabite, all working for David, all in part of his kingdom, part of his generals. Like We tend to fly over those things, but those would have been markers. These are all foreigners that were working for, in David's kingdom. Uh, in fact, one of these Garim housed, are you ready? The Holy of Holies, the, the Ark of the Covenant, was, was kept at his house for a while. So they assimilated great, and then we also know the story of Ruth. And basically, Ruth is a story about this. This is, you're supposed to learn from this story. This is how you're supposed to treat uh, the foreign among us. Now, it's interesting to think about what did Jesus, what was his stance on all of this? How did he treat the Garim? 
Well, we don't know a whole lot. We do know um, that he restricted his mission to the Jews, right? He said, don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles, even though he went through some of their land occasionally. As you know, he, he talked to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, right? I mean, yeah. <coughs> he, <coughs> he did help a Canaanite girl woman who was a, whose daughter was possessed by a demon. And at the end of his ministry, he extends his mission to the Gentiles. Jesus refers obliquely to the Gentiles in John. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them I must, I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there will be one fold, one shepherd. So there are hints that Jesus wants to bring the Gentile population, the Gur population in. <coughs> now, something happens though that I talk about right up here. The Synoptic Gospels portray Jesus at odds with specific segments of the Jews. You're familiar with that. He gets in arguments with Pharisees and Sadducees. Sometimes the scribes, he'll, he'll mention the scribes. The scribes are sort of a, a literate cast uh, of people who uh, were responsible for recording the scriptures and making public records and things like that. Um, so the powerful ruling class of the Sadducees as well as the legalistic Pharisees. Uh, Pharisees were an anti-Sadducee movement. The Sadducees denied the resurrection, uh, the possibility of resurrection, and they were basically a political force, like Herod was a Sadducee. <coughs> the Gospel of John, probably penned late in the first century CE, a period when Judaism, Christian faith had fully and bitterly parted, portrays a different relationship between Jesus and the Jews than the Synoptics. For example, the author says the Passover of the Jews and the Feast of the Jews when he refers to uh, Jew, uh, practices of the Jews, meaning that the author is speaking from outside Judaism, does not see himself as a Jew. Negative portrayals of the Jews. The Jews is used 71 times in John and only 16 in the synoptics, usually by the narrator. The Jews are on the side of the world the Jews fail to understand Jesus. The Jews persecute Jesus and seek to kill him. All these verses I itemized for you. And the Jews are untrue to the tradition of the Torah. So whereas the other books will specify this, he's talking to a Pharisee or a group of Pharisees or he's talking to Sadducees. This is just the Jews. It, there are negative portrayals of the leaders. In 1915, the leaders seemed more faithful to Caesar than God. We'll find this quoted later on. Pharisees are blind, false teachers. The Pharisees oppose Jesus. And the chief priests oppose Jesus. And John even says that the Jews are responsible for Jesus' death. And Pilate only gives in to the Jews. So he's not, as you know, he washes his hands and says, I'm not responsible. He declares Jesus innocent. I found this man to be innocent. And the Jews are linked in this longer passage to the devil. We are not illegitimate children. They protested the father. The only father we have is God himself. 
Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come here on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, all of us know and can recognize that this is specific context, and he's speaking to some specific people. Yes? But how is this going to be taken historically? For instance, Mel Gibson, who used the Gospel of John for the basis of his movie, Jesus of Nazareth, a short time later, do you remember this? Just goes off when he's arrested saying anti-Jewish remarks. And I used to think, where did this come from, Mel? What in the world? He, he said this, and he was asking the police officer if he were a Jew. <coughs> he yelled out, the Jews are responsible for all the wars in the world. And I remember thinking, what? <laughs> but then I thought, he's just spent a whole lot of time studying the Gospel of John. And he made some bad connections there, but he's not the first to make those connections. There are some occasional positive portrayals um, in John of some neutral and positive stance towards Jesus, and I'll give you some verses. Um, well, particularly Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee. <coughs> not to mention um, a Pharisee paid for Jesus' grave. All right. So, what did he mean by the Jews? Good question. Does he mean all Jews? But the problem is, the disciples and Jesus himself are Jewish. So, why would he use the Jews? Does he mean religious leaders? Does he mean the majority of the Jews? Or could he mean the leaders of the masses at the time of Jesus' ministry? Or maybe, like I said, maybe Jesus is talking to specific groups of people, pointing out specific problems. But they're taken as generally true of all Jews. All right. Some. Wait. Okay. Stopped working for a second. <coughs> Ultimately, Pilate and the Romans are blamed for Jesus' death in John. The Jews and the Pharisees seem to function synonymously elsewhere. The Jews may stand for priestly castes, so maybe it means by the Jews specific Pharisaic groups, specific Sadducees. And the word that was most often used for the followers of Jesus is multitudes. So maybe the author's making a, a contrast between the multitudes and the Jews. It's still an unfortunate way to put it. Early Christians, Jewish Christians saw themselves as insiders being cast out. Most people think that what has happened by the time of the John is that Christians are very disappointed because they've been thrown out. It was a, a Jewish religion. Christianity was not Christianity. It was part of Judaism. And by the time John writes, there's been a complete break between Christians and Jews. Jerusalem has been destroyed. And people begin to add up something else that we'll find reflected in the writings of later people. Hmm. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70. Jesus is killed in 30. 
must be God's punishment, right? It's because they killed Jesus. Now, people are gonna add that up. I feel disgusted saying something like that because historically, that's nonsense. It's because they actually tried to war against Rome, <laughs> right? And partially, it's ironically, uh, you know, because they wanted Jesus to be other than he was. They wanted him to be a military leader, right? So eventually, they tried that option, and it didn't work. And Jerusalem was destroyed. Okay, so summary so far. Jewish practices established the exclusion of resident aliens, inability to own property, lending them money with interest, offering low-paying labor jobs. Over time, many Gurim assimilated. So there is um, kind of an ironic mirror that what will happen to the Jews themselves when they leave after Jerusalem's destroyed is they're gonna find themselves in this kind of situation again. It's gonna be a mirror of that. They're not gonna be allowed to own property, but they are gonna be allowed to go into banking because they can lend money with interest. Christians followed the rule that you couldn't lend money with interest. What happened to that one? I'd like to call my bank up. You guys Christians over there because you're lending me money with interest. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Jesus was a Jew speaking to Jews and his ministry focused predominantly on the Jewish community. His challenge to the Jews was targeted to hypocrisy and legalism. But over time, the writing of the Gospel of John, Judaism, Christianity had split, and the Gospel's predominantly negative portrayal of, quote, the Jews opened the door to centuries of anti-Semitism. It continued to be a part of the Christian fathers. This is just one example. John Chrysostom in 34 <coughs> to 407, so in the time of when, uh, when Christianity became the state religion of Rome, the synagogue is worse than a brothel. It is a den of scoundrels and re repair of wild beasts, the temple of demons. And then he goes down here, uh, a place of meaning for the assassins of Christ, a house worse than drinking shop, den of thieves, a house of ill fame, dwelling of iniquity, the refuge of devils, gulf and abyss of perdition. I would say the same things about their souls. I hate the synagogue, I hate the Jews for the same reason. Wow, I hated reading that. But I think it's important to think this is what happened. And you can hear echoes of some of the language of the Gospel of John in that. All right, though much of the work of the Protestant reformers was positive because the Jews did not respond to his teachings of justification by faith, Luther, Luther and other reformers denounced Jews and Judaism based and isolated, I think, isolated and misappropriated Old and New Testament passages. All right, so of course we know that Martin Luther did some, some good things that really changed the, f the face of Christianity and the face of the world. <clears throat> For one, he, he reintroduced the idea that salvation is a free gift of God through grace. He translated the Bible into German, which made it available to the German people, and that set a model uh, later on, of course, for the Tyndale Bible in English, and then later for the King James Bible. So the whole idea of giving people access to the scriptures, the priesthood of all believers, and he wrote some hymns like A Mighty Fortress is Our God that are still part of our hymnals today. He also married Katrina von Bora, uh, who was a, a former nun, and he set the standard the clergy can marry. <coughs> 
But in two of his later works, Luther expressed antagonistic views toward Jews, writing that, this is uh, what Wikipedia says. In two of his later works, Luther expressed antagonistic views toward Jews, writing that Jewish homes and synagogues should be destroyed, their money confiscated, and liberty curtailed. Hmm, sounds familiar. Condemned by virtually every Lutheran denomination, these statements and their influence on anti-Semitism have contributed to his controversial status. All right, I was taught the same thing, that Luther basically went a little nuts towards the end of his years, and he wrote some things very anti-Jewish, you know, but I'd never read them. The book was called On the Jews and Their Lives. What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? Since they live among us, we dare not tolerate their conduct, now that we are aware they're lying and reviling and blaspheming. So he made several suggestions of what Christians should do. First, set fire to their synagogues or schools and bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn. He bases this on Deuteronomy. Any city is given to idolatry should be totally destroyed by fire. Second suggestion, I advise that their houses be razed and destroyed. This will bring home that they are not masters in our country. All prayer books and Talmudic writings shall be taken from them. I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on the pain of loss of life and limb. Interesting, this photo was posted in an article, a recent story about neo-Nazis in Germany warning Jewish people not to wear anything that marks them as Jewish. I advise that safe conduct on the, in other words, travel restrictions. Hmm. I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews. So they can't travel, they can't have homes, they can't have synagogues or their teachings. I advise that usury be prohibited to them and that all cash and treasure, silver and gold be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. He pointed out, or he based this on this, there are two classes of Jews or Israelites. The one who are the true children of God, right? And then the other Jews are those of the emperor, not of Moses. They wait to the time of Pilate, the procurator of land of Judah and they said I don't know there we go we have no king but Caesar all right so I thought well maybe I'll go look at John Calvin Calvin please save me and he didn't the the Jews rotten and unbending stiff-necked deserves that they be oppressed unendingly and without measure or end and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. Wow. Now, sometimes he is seen as being less harsh and less anti-Semitic because he does write some documents about the Jewish relationship to God and that they're God's chosen and special people. But then he writes stuff like this because there seems to be a difference to him between historical Jews and present-day Jews. All right, big fun now. As far as I, I, I've had trouble translating that, partially because of the old script and partially because some of it 
I, they made poetic license, but I'm pretty sure it says something like Hitler's Mein Kampf, Hitler's struggle and Luther's teachings uh, the, um, makes good soldiers out of the Germans. 1900 years of Christian writings, practices of exclusion, discrimination, and murder, along with Luther's book, opened the doors for the Nazi party. Luther's work and Christian history was used to legitimate their policies. You may be saying, are you sure? Yes, we'll see, there's evidence. They tapped into the recent term for a hatred of Jews, anti-Semitism. <coughs> All right, anti-Semitism is a term described hatred of Jews was not used until the second half of the 19th century, but a bias against Jews that existed for thousands of years. Jews were branded, branded as the murderers of Christ. Later, when Jews attempted to assimilate into European societies, they faced strong discrimination and resistance. Other citizens viewed them as economic competition. Negative stereotypes evolved about the Jews in relation to their role in money lending. Because Christians could not lend money for interest, but Jews could, big can of worms gets opened up. In 2000, uh, an, uh, a document called Dabru Emet was issued by 220 rabbis and intellectuals. Nazism was not a Christian phenomenon. It should say but. But without the long history of Christian anti-Judaism and Christian violence against Jews, Nazi ideology could not have taken hold, nor could it have been carried out. Too many Christians participated in or were sympathetic to Nazi atrocities against the Jews. Other Christians did not protest sufficiently against the atrocities, but Nazism itself was not an inevitable outcome of Christianity. But they go there. The similarities between Luther's anti-Jewish writings and the modern anti-Semitism are no coincidence because they're derived from a common history of Judenas, which can be traced to Haman's advice to Ahasuerus. Christian anti-Semitism, she writes, is the foundation that was laid by the Roman Catholic Church and upon which Luther built. All right, so what did Hitler say? Well, I found this and I had to just kind of sit down for a while. 1933, Hitler met with a Roman Catholic bishop, Wilhelm Berning. And he said this, I've been attacked because of my handling of the Jewish question. The Catholic Church considered the Jews pestilent for 1,500 years, put them into ghettos because it recognized the Jews for what they were. In the epoch of liberalism, and the, the danger was no longer recognized. I am moving back toward the time in which a 1,500-year-long tradition was implemented. I do not set race over religion, but I recognize that the representatives of this race as pestilent for the state and for the church and perhaps I'm thereby doing Christianity a great service by pushing them out of schools and public functions. There's no record of the bishop's response. And again, in the same article, the Nazis used Martin Luther's book on the Jews and their loss to claim moral righteousness for their ideology. Hans Kung has written that Nazi anti-Judaism was the work of godless anti-Christian criminals, but it would not have been possible without 2,000 years of prehistory of Christian anti-Judaism. Believe me, I'm not saying this just to depress you. 
because I don't think this is over. What Hitler just said about liberal environment and getting back to basics sounds pretty familiar. Hitler proposed, are you ready for this? Positive Christianity. I didn't know about this. Did you know about that? Positive Christianity called it. It mixed ideas of racial purity, Nazi ideology, and elements of Christianity. One of my professors said, there's nothing more dangerous than a half-truth because you'll hear the truth part and think the other part's true. Remember that when you're watching the news. <laughs> Hitler said in 1920 party platform, the party represents this, the standpoint of positive Christianity. All right, this made some people happy because they were kind of tired of the present Christianity, right? They thought it had gotten old and stale. They thought this positive Christianity sounded like a, a way to keep uh, Christian ideology alive. Nevertheless, Hans Kerl, the Nazi minister of church affairs in 1937, so 17 years later, explained that positive Christianity was not dependent on the Apostles' Creed, nor was it dependent on faith in Jesus as the Son of God. So I'm beginning to wonder, well then, what the heck was it? But notice it took 17 years. You start off with saying, yeah, we're Christians, and then whittling away. So, Hans Carroll said, the Fuhrer is the herald of a new revelation. Positive Christian advocates also sought to deny the Semitic origins of Christ and the Bible. Jesus is not a Jew according to this point of view. Such elements, they separate themselves from Nicene Christianity and of course they're considered non-Orthodox. Hitler was supportive of Christianity in public, but hostile to it in private. He identified himself as a Christian in April 12, 1922. Hitler identified himself as a Christian in Mein Kampf. So, what they did is they took over the state church, put it under positive Christianity. It was a project that mostly failed because it created the, the, uh, the confessing church. So what was negative Christianity? Of course, it was the Roman and Protestant church, according to him. During the war, Rosenberg drafted a plan oh, That just seems odd to me, because isn't Rosenberg usually a, German, uh, a Jewish name? Okay, anyway, <laughs> it's just it's like, wait, Rosenberg? Drafted a plan for the future religion of Germany, which would be the expulsion of the foreign Christian religions and replacement with the Bible with Mein Kampf and the cross with the swastika. Okay, notice that was all step by step, though. You don't start off doing stuff like that. So the church in Nazi Germany. Any threat to Hitler could not be tolerated. The Catholic Church was a threat to Hitler. So, 1933, they signed an agreement. Catholic Church signed an agreement that he would not interfere with the Catholic Church and the Church would not, what? Interfere with politics. This only lasted until 37 when he started arresting priests who apparently didn't get the message <laughs> that they were supposed to go along. What about Protestants? What were they doing? Now the Protestant church is kind of a collection, but German Christians, remember there's a state Lutheran church in Germany, so easily taken over because there's just one church. It was led by Ludwig Müller, who believed in any member of the church who had Jewish ancestry should be sacked from the church. He became the Reich Bishop. You can see him right there, shaking Hitler's hand. 
By now you're thinking, didn't anybody stand up? This guy. Those who opposed the views of Müller were called the Confessing Church. This was led by Martin Niemüller. He was famous in Germany as he had been a World War I U-boat captain. Therefore, he was potentially an embarrassing foe to the Nazis. Regardless of this, he was not safe from the Gestapo. Niemüller was sent to concentration camp for seven years where he was kept in solitary confinement. Many other confessional church members suffered the same fate. You're probably familiar with uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who also was a member of the Confessing Church, and he actually decided that it was his Christian responsibility to help um, kill Hitler. And the plot was exposed, and he was executed. All right, so here's the famous lines that Niemöller said. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, but I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out. Why? Because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no line left to speak for me. He lived until 1984, and it's, it's pretty famous that he met with a Jew later and he said, he said I, I don't know if we can ever come together because there's guilt between us. It gets worse. <laughs> the Baptist Church Congress, the Worldwide Baptist meet, Meeting of the Baptist Leadership was in Berlin, 1934. Hitler thought this is a good opportunity and he used it. Speakers who appeared in front of the swastika include Southern Baptist George W. Truett, who was elected the president at that meeting. Bishop Mueller, the same guy we talked about two slides ago, said, told them his objective was to secure the preaching of the gospel in Germany and Ricardo Baptist as brothers, and they would not be incorporated into the national church. What? The BWA responded with a resolution of appreciation. Baptists went along with the times, Warden, the author of many books on Baptists and other Protestants in Eastern Europe said, and in a totalitarian regime, it's easier to go along with the times. That's glaringly, brutally honest. So some other information. The Nazis used the police to protect Baptists from harassment and granted them favorable locations for their ministries. The Gestapo forced Pentecostals and Plymouth Brethren, of course, notoriously resistant to armed services, to disband, and some of their congregations joined the, the Baptists. Then the relations with the government office, especially the church ministry and the secret police, were uninterruptedly friendly. A lot of these things I heard as I was growing up, like the Baptists supported Nazis, and I'm like, really? All right, the Roman Catholics finally did something. They spoke against all of this. In what year? 1958. Don't feel too braggadocious because the Protestants are later. <laughs> 1958, they removed the phrase the perfidious Jews from the Good Friday liturgy, and in 1965, they approved the Nostra Ate. Ate. Atate. Even though the Jewish authorities and those who followed their lead pressed for the death of Christ, neither all Jews indiscriminately at that time nor Jews today can be charged with the crimes committed during his passion. Wish they'd have said that a few thousand years earlier. 
It is true that the church is the new people of God, yet the Jews should not be spoken of as rejected or accursed as if this followed from Holy Scripture. Remembering then, um, because this was taught in many of the Protestant denominations that the, that the people of God were now the Christians and the Jews were accursed and rejected people. Remembering then that it's common heritage with the Jews and moved not by any political consideration but solely by religious motivation of Christian charity. It deplores all hatreds, persecution, displays of anti-Semitism directed against the Jews at any time from any source. Why so long? Presbyterian reaction, 1987. They renounced the idea that Christians had replaced Jews as the people of God. And in 1994, they repudiated Luther's anti-Semitic work. That's astounding to me. I mean, I'm glad it happened. But 1994? We reject this violent invective and yet more do we express our deep and abiding sorrow over its tragic effects on subsequent generations. We recognize an anti-Semitism is a contradiction and an affront to the gospel, a violation of our hope and calling. We pledge this church to oppose the deadly working of such bigotry, both within our own circles and the society around us. Again, why so long? Recent Presbyterian reaction has caused a little more controversy. Presbyterians have officially um, said that their policies to divest uh, certain companies and, and practices from Israel because they see them as similar to uh, South African apartheid in the way they treat Palestinians. Now, I don't know whether you agree with that or not, um, but it has caused some risk between Presbyterians and Jews. In other words, <coughs> so there's been some effort in the Presbyterian church to see Zionism as uh, something from the past and not something to be actually produced. In other words, not supportive of the Jewish taking of more Palestinian territory, etc. When the Nazis came to power, the church reacted abysmally. I think you could see that. The Roman Catholics made a deal. The German church allowed itself with the Nazis and the Baptists were favored. Only the German confessing church resisted at the cost of many of their lives. The Catholic Church was first to address its complicity in 5865, Presbyterians in 1987, the Lutherans in 1994. Presbyterians have worked alongside, and Presbyterians have worked alongside Jewish colleagues for various causes over time. Um, in fact, the relationship between the Jewish community and Presbyterians has been very positive up until this kind of mixed stance on Zionism. All in all, the doors of persecution and intolerance have been left open too long, set the stage for broader discrimination, persecutions, and abuses, such as, I think this is the new face of bigotry. Have you heard of Richard Spencer? He doesn't want you to hear of him in some ways. Born in 78, he's American white supremacist. This is all uh, from the wiki page. He's president of the National Policy Institute, which has learned that if you're going to be racist, you just call yourself something like the National Policy Institute. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sort of like positive Christianity. A white supremacist think tank as well as Washington Summit Publishers. He says that he's not a white supremacist. He supports the identitarian movement. But what does that mean? 
He advocates for white homeland, for dispossessed white race, and calls for peaceful ethnic cleansing to, to halt the deconstruction of European culture. I will admit, some of his arguments make a lot of sense. They're based in um, kind of the way we've all been taught European history. But he's using them, like scriptures have been used against Jews, in these really bizarre ways. Spencer and others have said that he created the term alt-right, which considers a movement about white identity. Remember when this whole thing about alt-right came up, most of us didn't know what it was, or who it was, or what was going on. There it is, that's where it came from. So what exactly is it? Views of the, and this is from what you need to know about the alt-right movement from NPR. Views of the alt-right are widely seen as anti-Semitic and white supremacist. It's mostly an online movement that uses websites, chat boards, social media, and memes to spread its message. It even uses coded message. It uses the word Google for the N-word. It puts up pictures, anti-Semitic pictures, but they're animals, frogs. The image that Trump reposted, remember that? Uh, of the Star of David, he got it from one of those sites. Most of its members are young white men who see themselves first and foremost as champions of their own demographic. Apart from their allegiance to the tribe, as they call it, their greatest point of unity lie, and they are against multiculturalism, immigration, feminism, and political correctness. They see political correctness as the greatest threat to their liberty, so they believe saying racist or anti-Semitic things is not an act of hate, but an act of freedom. Wow, that reminds me of the saying over the, over the concentration camps. Yes, what did it say? Yeah, all right, mine's fine. Work makes you free. Wow. For that reason, as well as fun and notoriety, alt-writers like to troll, prank, and provoke. And of course, the main newspaper of the alt-right is Breitbart. And we all know who was asked to help the Trump campaign. This is why a lot of people were upset. Richard Spencer's interview with Common Bell. First of all, I got to admire Common Bell. You could see up there, he's an African-American, and he works for CNN. He went to an alt-right meeting. I don't know if I would want to go to an alt-right meeting. I find this tremendously brave of him to do this, and he interviewed Richard Spencer. I wrote a bit of uh, the interview here. I know that you can't really uh, read it. I, in some ways, it's one of the most absurd conversations I've ever seen. But one of the things Spencer says is, those people who immigrated here, they did so precisely because it's a white country. He has this sort of weird view that the settlers were all pilgrims and pioneers and cowboys. He's kind of bought into this Hollywood idea of, of who, uh, quote, we are. Spencer said the note, but he's particularly... Uh, it took him a while to answer this question. But Bell says, well, for the lack of a better word, how do you execute this plan? How do you make this new America that you want, right? And he says, the, mo the notion of reviving the Roman Empire, yeah, it's a big dream. I think we should dream big. That's typical language of a, you know, American culture, isn't it? Dream big. But he's dreaming about the Roman Empire. And I'm thinking, well, wait a second. America was never part of the Roman Empire. It didn't even exist. What are you talking about? And then I had to think, 
And the Roman Empire was notoriously tolerant, right? As long as you didn't offend the laws and paid your taxes or whatever, they were fine. They didn't bother anybody. They allowed all religions. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'd like to revive that part of the Roman <laughs> Empire. Tolerance. All right. So, I got to thinking about it. But I remember in my teaching, and I'm so glad that I was a history major sometimes, when they said, okay, why did Hitler call it the Third Reich? A lot of people don't know the answer to that question. Reich is empire. The Third Empire. Okay, first one was the Roman Empire. Second was the Holy Roman Empire. As one historian said, neither holy nor Roman. Actually, not even an empire. The Holy Roman Empire, and then the third that Hitler was trying to establish was the Third Reich. Okay, so basically he's saying to revive, he's saying right to Kamebel's face, I want a Fourth Reich. But notice how he did it in such a coded way, in kind of American way. I like to dream big. Did you miss it? I missed it the first time I watched it. I just thought, well, that's a nutty thing to say. But I didn't really think about in what world does it make sense? That's always a good strategy when someone says something crazy. Like, in what world does it make sense? Then you might find something out. Dream big of a Fourth Reich. So when did we see it happening? Charlottesville. This is a wake-up call for a lot of people, was it not? You're like, How, what? what? People wandering around saying uh, Jews are not going to control us or replace us. Where's this coming from? Didn't it seem to come from nowhere? It didn't come from nowhere. It came from the Internet. Richard Spencer referring to the Nazi alt-right march in Charlottesville. I love the torches. It's spectacular. It's theatrical and mystical and magical and religious even. He's digging it. Journalist Graham Wood summarizing Richard Spencer. He longed for something as robust as binding as Christianity had once been in the West. So, who are all these people that are in this alt-right or in the neo-Nazi movements? Most of them are young men. Sound familiar? Richard Evans, men of 1920s Germany. They were attracted to extremism and violence irrespective of ideology. They weren't looking for ideas with meaning. Look at those kids. Violence was like a drug for such men. Often they had only the haziest notion of what they were fighting for. Hostility to the enemy du jour, communists, Jews, whomever, was the core of their commitment. As one young stormtrooper later reflected on the bonding effect of collective violence, it was all too wonderful, perhaps hard to write about. Brian McLaren writes, he's uh, for Time Magazine, he's also, I think, a... a a minister. I suppose that's part of the shock of Charlottesville. White Islamophobic Americans were developing conspiracy theories about Sharia law coming in from the outside, and our own brand of violent extremism was brewing in our basements. Former white nationalist Christian uh, Piccolini warns, what people need to understand is that September 11th, more Americans have been killed on U.S. soil by white supremacists than any foreign or domestic group combined by a factor of two. We don't really talk about that, nor do we call these instances terrorism. If you want to know more about that, uh, this is a, 
There's a list of the killings committed by white extremists since the Oklahoma City bombing. 37 attacks and 77 deaths. All right. Again from that McLaren on Time Magazine. White nationalism isn't simply an extremist political ideology, it is an alt-religious movement. They give them, the people in it, a sense of identity, community, and purpose. If faith communities don't provide healthy, life-giving human needs, then death-dealing alt-religions will fill the gap. The alt-right and the neo-Nazis feel supported by Donald Trump and creating a, a violent alt-Christianity as their counterparts in the Middle East have created an alt-Islam. He ends by saying, if we don't provide emerging generations with genuine identity, community, and purpose throughout, through robust and vibrant spiritual communities, somebody else will do so. If good religion slumbers and stagnates, bad religion is the alternative. Sean Hannity got on there and said the alt-right is not racist. Huh. Contrast Elliot Nelson. The alt-right is a hate movement and scarier than you think. Huffington Post. All right. So depressingly enough, let me conclude with some more positive things to say. One is I've already said, I think the church needs to step it up. This is dangerous. And it's a reinterpretation, and it's got enough of Christianity in it that it has that appeal to some people. Anti-Semitism is a template for all discrimination. Tolerance of it keeps open the doors of other types of hatred and discrimination. The church itself, both Catholic and Protestants, have historically colluded with anti-Semitism, providing false legitimacy to recent hate groups. I'm sure they're reading Luther's book again. Our own government has been implicated in ties to the alt-right and refuses to acknowledge that white supremacists are, not a, are more of a threat to national security than Islamic terrorists, not only because of their proximity and clear and present danger to much of the U.S. population, but also because its spread and general acceptance of the beliefs may actually inspire more acts of Islamic terrorism in the U.S. And of course, our own president retweeted something from a British version of this kind of group recently, and it said that it caused their membership to soar. Our government and our news media must realize that when it uses language and tactics similar to the alt-right, it's in collusion with them and intentionally or unintentionally helping their cause. So, where are the principles? Like all the other issues that I've talked about, we don't have clear passages, but we do have principles. In this case, one is confronted with the absurdity that the Christian church has condemned the Jewish people while at the same time lauding their relationship to God and referencing their scriptures. The church seems to have forgotten that Jesus was a Jew, that his ministry was to the Jews. A whole people has been condemned for simply not accepting a variant version of their own religion. But even the scriptures, Old and New Testament, say, do not take revenge on others or continue to hate them, but love your neighbors as you love yourself. I am the Lord. My children, our love should not just be words and talk. It must be true love which shows itself in action. First John, Leviticus. To conclude, you must have the same attitude and the same feelings. Love one another and be kind and humble with one another. Do not pay back evil with evil or cursing with cursing. Instead, pay back with blessing because a blessing is what God promised to give you when he called you. First Peter. 
as they should have in the 1920s, Christians should recognize the ways in which their faith has been co-opted by those who want to discriminate and harm others. They should help people find identity, community, and purpose in healthy communities of love and respect. It's time now to act. Now, I'm just gonna go full out controversial here, but this is just me. This is the way I see it. You don't have to agree, but I do want you to think about what I'm saying. First, they came for the Muslims, and I did not speak out because I was not a Muslim. Then they came for the immigrants, and I did not speak out because I'm not an immigrant. Then they came for the Jews. Notice that's exactly what happened. Yes, historically, and then all of a sudden Charlottesville happens. And all of a sudden they're talking about Jews. I'm like, where did this come from? But what did Jesus say? Jesus said unto him, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And what's the second commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Of these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Enough said. Yes. I went to a presentation last week by a, a young woman who was born in Russia and then when she was three years old her family immigrated to Israel and she said that her passport and her parents passport from Russia said that their nationality was Jew and I had no idea that that's the way Russia runs things but yeah. that's sort of a clue as to what's going on out there. I, um, it's amazing what's happening in terms of anti-Semitism right now. Germany and Russia, these are small segments of the population. And Russia's not small, it's official. There's an official antagonism toward Jewish people in well, Russia. And Israel is being invaded by people from France now. They have a city somewhere up north that is almost all French people. I heard... Um, I wish I could remember who it was. Someone on NPR, a um, Jewish comedian, was talking about that they had a game that they played with their uh, sister when they were growing up. He, he said, it's a really dark game. He said, but the game was that they would ask each other, if everything fell apart and we were persecuted again, which people around us would help us and which people would turn us in? I was just kind of stunned. And he said, I think almost every Jewish person has that game in the back of their mind, that they could all change. Who could I trust? I'm like, wow. He's living now. It humbled the heck out of me. It makes me committed even more to the things I've been talking about. Yeah. The modern political the modern political state of Israel, have they really corrupted their own religion? In other words, they're not really practicing the values we talk about in the Old Testament, but rather have become a nationalistic ideology. I, I don't want to say that without saying I think the whole planet's kind of going that direction. 
I think you could say that right now about the U.S. I, I think we're getting more and more nationalistic. This is not some big secret. And I think, I do think it's that Christianity is being co-opted to ends that it, it shouldn't be co-opted to, but too often has been historically. I'll just say one other thing. I, I go to Temple Israel pretty regularly for different programs that they have there, and that's where I heard this young woman speak. But they actually have their door locked. You have to like ring the doorbell to get in. And uh, when they have major events, they have a police officer there that's uh, keeping an eye on who's going in. So it's here. It's here. So what are we going to do about it? There's many, many churches that have police officers, too, for the same reasons or similar reasons. Uh, I think there's a difference between uh, anti-Jew and anti-Semite. And I think that that's part of the fallacy of when we lump those two things together as if they're the same. Yeah. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm on board with you know, a lot of what you're saying, but I think that distinction can take the, the discussion in one way or another. Because a lot of the things that you were quoting were people that were looking at the unfaithfulness of Jew as a separate than from making it a racial statement. And, and we in Christianity, we make our judgments, as do Jews make their judgments, as do Muslims make their judgments, upon their scriptures, if you will. And so when you're talking about specific passages and principles, I, I'm, again, basically in agreement with you, but there's a distinction that's really important, that those principles do come from specific scriptures or else they're not at all related to the scripture. And so I think we have to be careful in that regard to just, well, we're gonna throw out those scriptures. No, the church, the Presbyterian church has always said we're gonna interpret scripture by scripture. And if there's a scripture that's particularly hard to understand, what does the rest of the scripture say about that? So therefore the principle, but it does come from the specific scriptures. And I think those are some of the things that can help bring some clarity to a lot of what you're saying, those two things, anti-Semitism, Jew, principle, scriptures, that will help us get a, to a closer place of where we need to be. I appreciate what you're doing and saying. Previous weeks, I think I've, I didn't bring that up as much this time, but previous weeks, that's more what I've been saying, is that on the anti-Semitism, anti-Jew part, I'm just going with the fact that anti-Semitism is the word used. I realize that it's actually an illogical word because uh, Semitic Palestinians are Semitic people. So you can have, uh, anti-Jew might be a, a better word for some of what I'm talking about. I just kind of went with the most familiar term. But yeah, I, I realize there's a distinction and there's also an absurdity in even the phrase anti-Semitism. Also I believe though, I'm not advocating necessarily that we throw passages out. I th do think, I mean, you can't, they're there. But 
Um, I do say that the principles, we have to use those principles to understand those passages, especially something like the Gospel of John. I think we have to look at it in the light of its history, in the light of uh, its focus, and also to realize that every statement made is not made about every Jewish person. It's made in arguments between specific groups of people and Jesus. So I think we've misunderstood and made it, made it way too broad, made it anti-Jew, when I, I don't think it was. It was it, I think the principle ought to be, well, what's he arguing about? What's he, what's he saying to them? What's, what is he trying to get them to see about themselves? And it's usually about hypocrisy or, or overly legalistically looking at the world, usually about one of those two things. And of course, I think we're all guilty of those things at points in our lives. It just seems like it's more about whom we are, who we are as people and human beings. Yes. We take a little bit of truth and then we decide that's the whole truth and impose it upon others just for control to control our fear when we really should be in the same humble position to realize we have only little bits of truth and we need to listen to the author of truth, but we still don't have the authority to have results. We are no. so results-oriented that we will impose our will. We forget that judge not lest you be judged, yeah. and, and passages like that, like, I, I don't know everything. I don't know people's hearts. I don't know what they're about. I do know their actions, and I know yeah. there are some things that we have to fight. Yeah. Um, but I, even fighting, to me, isn't like battle. It's like spreading good ideas, yeah. right? They're infectious too. <laughs> so love, I, the best way to fight is love. Uh, you know, I don't really want to attack these people. Right. Um, they may be well-meaning. I think they're highly misled. And I don't even want to say they're well-meaning, but I mean, in terms of their own perspective, they might see themselves as good people. I don't see what they're doing as good. I, I think a person that I quote, remember the guy that I quoted a few weeks ago about where he said to his son, you don't know how much I love you when his son said something mean to him. He also told me this, uh, you know the, in the Bible where Jesus says, don't call anyone a fool. And um, he very much lived by that. And, and, um, but he said to this man when I was standing there one time, he says, I'm not saying you're a fool. He says, I'm saying you're acting like one. And I think that's a useful <laughs> distinction. I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying anything. I don't know what your motive is, but I do know this is foolish. This is insanity, what you're talking about. I think that's a useful distinction. So I think putting up posters and saying, you know, I, I really object to people who just put up equally angry posters. You know what I'm saying? So if this side's saying kill so-and-so, they're saying kill so-and-so, that's not the solution, is it? Solution is walking over to them like Camus Bell. And go, what? Tell me. Tell me what you're thinking. Let me establish a bridge. I'm glad it's here after seeing this. Exactly. Yes. These 
Thanks. I'm glad you said that in many ways because this has been the hardest lecture series I've ever put together. <laughs> I'll go through a whole day of going like, wow, I had no idea. Um, and maybe you are now, but I don't think it's hopeless. I know it's not hopeless. We're all here talking about it. It's not hopeless. <laughs> 